Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Elizabeth Splane. Now, Elizabeth writes crime fiction, but she has a bit of an eclectic catalog, and I will let you discover what that means uh, through the interview. But uh, she is not one-dimensional by any means. But before we talk to Elizabeth, I do need to tell you that A Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it from the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that sounds like something you'd dig, then head over to their website at downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books... Take the journey with us. All right, well, uh, let's not mess around. Let's uh, jump straight into my interview with Elizabeth Splane. Well, hey, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, On your website, it says that you have had some varied careers, and specifically the two that caught my eye as being rather different uh, from each other. You were in healthcare administration, but also a professional singer. Now, I yes. mean, I just, I, those got to be completely different careers. Yes, they are. <laughs> They're very different. And it's not good if you burst into song in the hospital, or maybe it is, <laughs> but I never did that. But um, I, I really had always wanted to be a singer, but I didn't go down that road. Uh, and so I ended up getting a master's in healthcare administration and working in healthcare for 10 years in downtown Boston and Lynn right outside of uh, Boston. And I just, I really wasn't happy. And my husband said, you need to be singing because I had stopped singing. And after studying voice, like really studying voice to be an opera singer from the age of 12 all through college. And then I didn't sing for almost 10 years. And then I recorded a CD. We lived outside of Boston. I didn't know what else to do. So I kind of did that. And then I ended up uh, enrolling in the um, New England Conservatory's extension program and studied voice there. And then um, we moved to central Pennsylvania, Hershey, and I started auditioning for local companies and got parts and it kind of built from there. And then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I ended up with named parts in that regional company. And um, I sang outside of Philly and in Baltimore. So I ended up performing professionally and was very fortunate to have done that because I didn't have a music degree. Literally, there was an opera singer, I'll never forget. We were backstage and he played Rigoletto and he was so good. He was so good. And backstage, I said to him, what's your story, man? Because he was from New York. And I said, are you do this full time? And he said, Oh no, honey, I'm a caterer. Come on. You know? And so he's like, and then he asked me my story and I said, well, I have three kids. And he said, you have three kids. How are you doing this with three kids? And the answer is I was doing it regionally. I didn't try Mm -hmm. to go outside of that. You know, I never tried to make it a bigger thing than that, but it was a passion and I enjoyed it immensely. And then I started teaching voice, not on purpose. It fell in my lap. And That was 17 years ago. And so one day on stage, I just didn't want to be there anymore. I was singing with one of my students. We were doing the flower duet from Lachme, one of the most beautiful duets in the world, in my opinion. And I just didn't want to be there anymore. It was like a switch had turned off. And I came home and I said, I don't want to be doing this anymore. And then um, I had sort of started to write. And so this, this transition ended up just kind of happening. So let's backtrack just a little bit. Uh, when people hear professional singer, I mean, that's such a wide uh, swathe of possibilities there. Um, 
sounds like you were singing uh, a classical singer. You sang opera. Yes, it was only opera, actually. And um, <laughs> it's just what my voice fits. So, yeah, it was just opera. It's just where my heart sits. My soul sits with the dark, you know, dramatic, sad <laughs> opera. It just does. It, What's your favorite? Hard. Opera? Mm-hmm. Um, that I've performed in would be Samson and Delilah. I play Delilah. And that is a beautiful mix of melancholy and terror and and terror and drama and power. She's such a powerful woman, but obviously she doesn't use it very well. And I sang with two great singers there. And um, Carmen was also, I played Carmen in a, in a, a smaller um, scale opera company in Pennsylvania. And that was fun because she's so out there. And again, she's an evil temptress. And it's so fun to play those characters. And those are the characters that I love to write too. Um, because, you know, being a goody two-shoes and those Disney character voices and it's boring. Like anybody can be good. It's much more fun to play bad, especially <laughs> if you don't, if you're not playing bad in real life, you know, that's the sure. opposite. I like to think. Yeah. So. Yeah. You, you don't play Dungeons and Dragons to be yourself, right? <laughs> you, you, <laughs> so you, you transitioned from uh, singing professionally in, uh, at a regional level to just a the switch went off one day and you moved into yeah. other things. How did you, there's an interesting story I'd like to hear of how you came up with this uh, Julian Stryker character that is in your blind thriller duology. Yeah. Um, this is literally how it happened. I, we lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Everyone had gone to school and work and um, I was brushing my teeth and my eyes were closed and the toothpaste cap fell on the floor. And so with my eyes still closed, I leaned down to get the toothpaste cap. And I couldn't find it. So I, I forced myself to keep my eyes closed to try to find the toothpaste cap. And I couldn't find it. Finally, I opened my eyes, picked up the cap, stood up, and I realized how hard it would be to be blind and to do something as simple as dropping a toothpaste cap and how infuriating that would be. And then the name Julian Stryker popped in my head. And I said out loud, that's a great name. That's a really great name. And then I just started, all these characters kind of started coming in my head. And so I went downstairs and I literally sat at the computer and I started to write my description of Julian, like him waking up in the morning and it opens with him in a nightmare. So hours later, my husband came home from work and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm not sure. I think I'm writing a book. And he said, what? And he said, I really, I think I'm writing a book. And that was the very first book. And it was called Blind Leading the Blind. And it has not been published, maybe someday, but it was all from Julian's perspective. So there was no sight in the book, which looking back was stupid, you know, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. So I finished it. I don't know. It's kind of a cool idea. It's not something I think has been done necessarily. Well, and what I, what I would do is I would, (laughs) I would blindfold myself and I would force myself to walk around the house and, and think about how things felt. So when Julian walked in a room, the first thing he did was feel the wall. And so all of a sudden, smells, tastes, and feeling became much more powerful in the book because they had to be. Mm-hmm. So the, I, I had a couple people read it. And one woman who was a writer said, this is great. This is a great idea. My husband said, this is a great story. They end up in, they're looking for some books. It's a very complicated story. Anyway, they end up in Belize and Mexico and 
Julian was blinded by one of his teenage clients. He's a he's a child psychologist based in Boston, and he was blinded by one a knife. Um, he was wounded by one of his clients, and he's so troubled that he didn't see it coming, literally and figuratively, that he goes back to school to become a profiler. After he gets his degree in profiling, he ends up being teamed up with the officer who was in charge of his, the investigation of his attack, and her name is um, Alexandra Hayes, Alex Hayes, and they over the course of the book, end up becoming a couple. So that book was not published, but then I wrote a book called Blind Order, and this is my favorite. She is a pediatric oncologist. Her name is Linda Sterling, and it's supposed to be a very ironic name, Linda as in pretty in Spanish, and Sterling as in Sterling Silver, right? So Linda Sterling is a sociopath, um, and she is a, a children's cancer doctor. So you have this, you know, dichotomy of, and she is serious about her work. She really is committed to these children, but she's absolutely freaking bananas. And so, and you, you know why from the beginning, why she is the way she is. And you know that she is the guilty party. So the entire book is her coming to meet Julian and becoming obsessed with him and how that whole thing spirals out of control. So that's the first book that was actually published called Blind Order. The follow-up book was called Blind Knowledge. And so Julian and Alex are very much a couple now, and they're going um, to the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts to have a little getaway weekend. And they come across um, a little girl standing in the road. She's about five years old, and she's holding a jar of buttons, and she will not speak to them. And so that's how the book opens. And they have to figure out who she is and what's with the buttons and why won't she speak. And he's blind. She's mute. So, you know, clearly there are some senses issues going on here. So the book uh, is about unraveling that mystery. And of course, there's death and destruction and mayhem along the way. So that's the history of, of uh, Julian Stryker and the Blind series. And I do think I have more books in me in that regard. Uh, I've taken a detour for the last two books that follow the Blind series. But I think I'm coming back to it just because I've had so many people say, you know, what's going to happen with this little girl? And what? where is Julian? And is he going to get his sight back? And uh, So we'll see. You never know. Well, let's talk about that detour a little bit, though, because you you detoured into some territory that uh, isn't uh, as well grounded in the here and now as, uh, as as some crime fiction. It delves into the spirit world a little bit uh, in Devil's Grace. Yeah, and you know, uh, calling on my ten plus years of working in healthcare, and my husband also works in healthcare. We met in grad school, and so um, he told me these two true stories: one of a person who had lost his wife and his son, I think, in an accident, and chose forgiveness every time. He he finally came face to face with someone who had been involved in his son. I don't remember all the details, but the, the man chose forgiveness all the time. And that really stuck with me. And another story my husband told me was about something that almost happened. It would have happened if he and his team hadn't stepped in and it would have been catastrophic across the country. And that's all I can say about it, but it didn't happen. And Kevin said, my husband said, you know, these are, you should write about these. And I was like, yeah. So one day, I was actually finishing Blind Knowledge and a, a friend of mine who um, talks with people who have passed all the time, she texted me out of the blue and she said, how's your writing going? So I called her. I was like, what's going on? She said, you're supposed to be writing about the light. And I said, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
I don't know what that means. And she said, I don't know what that means either. And I said, well, that's not helpful. And um, <laughs> so then we just started. <laughs> great. So we just started talking. And I told her, I said, you know, Kevin told me these two stories. And then I thought, what if I weave those together somehow? And because I know the healthcare world. And um, and I said, OK. And she goes, yeah, yeah, that's what you should do. That They're saying that's what you should do. And I said, OK, well, when I finish blind knowledge, she said, no, right now. And I said, no, I, I got it. She said, nope, right now, drop what you're doing, which is not in my nature. Because <laughs> so, but I responded to the directive and I said, okay. And she said, do it. And I said, I'm doing it. I got off the phone and I literally started writing Devil's Grace that day. Hmm. After like six chapters, I couldn't stand not finishing the other book. So I went back to the other book, finished it. I don't remember how long that took, a month or so, not even. And I came back to Devil's Grace. Uh, a friend of mine, Matt Fitzpatrick, actually, who you had on your show not too long ago. Um, he and I were on the phone. He is my husband's cousin. And um, he was telling me about this writing contest that he had been involved in. And he said, you know, you should enter this. You could win. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not I'm not like a real writer because, you know, my I didn't think of myself that way. I didn't dream of being a writer my whole life. And um, he's like, Beth, you should totally enter. So I called the CEO, Steve Eisner, and we talked on the phone for an hour. And I didn't even have a title for Devil's Grace. So we're on the phone and he says, what's the name of your book? And I said, oh, um, Devil's Grace. And he's like, whoa, that's a great name. I was like, yeah, that is a great name. I have no idea. Literally just popped out of my mouth. And so all of this, and there are more stories with the book that is just mind blowing to me. So this book has always been bigger than me. And I say that very understanding that it sounds wacky, but I think that Julian Stryker came to me. I don't know where it came, he came from and all the characters, and he's super fun to write. Devil's Grace was different because it was a labor of love. There was a lot of research involved from the medical. There's an open heart surgery scene. And um, it really is about what corruption and greed in the healthcare industry can do and the choices that we make along the way uh, that define not only who we are, but how it affects everyone around us. So Angela Brennan is slated to become the hospital's next CEO. She's a cardiac surgeon and she loses her whole family within 24 hours. She loses her husband and son in a car accident and she loses her daughter in the hospital where she works. After surgery, she dies, her daughter. She should have been fine, but something happened. And so it's a mystery of trying to figure out why her daughter died. She got through surgery fine. And then hours later, she was dead. And as Angela is trying to figure this out, she gets all these roadblocks thrown up in her way um, by her colleagues who all of a sudden are treating her differently. And she's just trying to understand. She's not looking to sue anybody. She's just trying to understand. And while her daughter is in surgery, before her daughter passes away, Angela has a conversation. And of course, she's sitting in the waiting room. and She's never sat in the waiting room. She's always been the one in the surgical suite. So for her to be on this side, it's, it's a perspective. You know, she's mm -hmm. seeing things differently. And she talks to this homeless man who's stinky and just kind of, you know, and he really is in her face. But in the end, he helps her. And after her daughter's surgery is complete, she goes to talk to her daughter and she remembers she should thank that man because he was so nice. So she goes back to the waiting room and she said, where's the man that was sitting here? And the woman, a woman who had been sitting in there and said, what man? And she said, the man, he was sitting right there, described him. And she said, it's been you and me for the last hour. And so Angela thinks she's losing her mind. And then 
you know, however many, an hour later, her daughter dies. So she thinks she's losing her mind, but, and maybe she is. And you don't know throughout the book whether she's all there or she's not all there and the decision she makes. And in the end, the ending is truly up to the reader. And people feel very strongly one way or the other about the ending. And I can't, of course, I can't tell you, but people are adamant. Like I've gotten into arguments, not me arguing, but they'll say, oh, no, it's definitely this way. And I'll say, OK, if you believe that, and they're like, no, no, it needs to be this way. OK, you know, so I, that's that's devil's grace. And that came out last November. It's sort of nice when people are so invested that they're willing to be that adamant about something. Um, yeah. It's the same way if you write a character that uh, they get particularly passionate about. I wrote Mm -hmm. a character in in my River City series who's a a police lieutenant who's pretty much a weasel is how I describe him. He's very, very, very self-serving and everything. And and especially in the early books, I would say borders on caricature almost uh, dialed him back and tried to make him a lot more human in the latter books. But but uh, boy, people hate him, right? And they love to hate him. And some people get really animated about it. Oh, that oh, Lieutenant Hart, I hate that guy. He's such a weasel. It's great to hear that level of passion from people. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. No question. It's like, it's just like being on stage. You know, when I would play one of those wicked characters and come off stage and, you know, if there were, God forbid, kids in the audience for Carmen or something like that. But I played a role one time um, Oh, in the medium. Oh, it's a fabulous opera. You asked me my favorite. There are so many. I I love the opera genre, but the characters, you know, so what I like to play may not be what I want to watch or, you know what I mean? It's different. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to play. But anyway, I came off stage and um, this little girl shrank away from me and she was absolutely <laughs> terrified. And I said, oh, that's so sweet. And then I said, oh, no, I'm really not like that. You know, it's just fun to play. So absolutely, I agree with you. And all these characters, when I write, I don't know about you, but when I write, I'm writing for a set. You know, I'm designing a set in my head. I know exactly what's on the nightstand. I may not write what's on the nightstand, or I may, but it's all there. It's ready for, you know, TV or stage or not that it will be, but that's how I see it. That's the only way I can see it actually. So yeah, I agree because you're invested. So when someone Mm -hmm. else shares your investment, absolutely. It's thrilling. Well, it sounds like you've written kind of a a, a little bit of a mixed sort of kind of hybrid uh, story here with with Devil's Grace because you have the dynamics of somebody going from a peer to a leadership role, and that has some very interesting dynamics. And then, of course, she's going through, you know, this tragedy that people can maybe relate to if they've been through it, certainly can sympathize. Um, and then you have some woo-woo thrown in there as well. You know, I mean, yep. you have some, some, I don't know how you, if you'd call it spiritualism exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Woo-woo is great. I mean, woo-woo that's actually what I, yeah, woo-woo <laughs> is what I call it. Um, you know, people are really where, like there was one woman in a review who said, uh, <laughs> who said she loved the book, loved it, but she gave it three out of five stars and she, she couldn't wait to, she couldn't put it down. She couldn't wait to but the hospital CEO, could someone really be that, you know, that conniving? And, that, and I was thinking, all the people I know in healthcare who have read the book say, oh, my God, spot on. <laughs> all the people who aren't in healthcare are like, oh, that would never happen. Mm. No one would think that way in healthcare. Healthcare is a business, man, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong. We all care, but it's a business, right? So 
Yeah, bookstore bookstore owners care about their customers too. You know, I mean, right? You know, exactly. Restaurant owners people, care about their have, customers too, yep. but that doesn't mean that you're not running a business. And I think that's exactly that right. And so, but one woman commented on um, on the woo woo. She's like, no one sees ghosts in that level of detail. That's what she said. And I, my first thought was, she's scared. And I thought, oh, man, I want to talk to this lady, not because I want her to change her review. I love when people are honest because it helps keep me honest. Right. But I wanted to talk to her because either she has seen something like that or she hasn't. And it terrifies her. So all of us have had experiences that we can't explain, even if it's feeling the hairs on your neck go up or feeling a breeze or sensing something, you know, all of us have done. We may not admit it. <laughs> But I believe that everyone has had something in that regard. Well, maybe she's the adult version of that little girl as you came off stage. Maybe. <laughs> God bless her. And and before we go, though, I want to talk about your upcoming book, uh, Swan Song, because it yes. occurs to me that, you know, they say, write what you know. I mean, I was a cop for 20 years when I started writing seriously. Again, crime fiction is what came out. Uh, you were a singer, and I would expect that you would somehow weave that musical background into your, into your books. And it, at least in a major way, it doesn't appear that you had it. Now you have a title that sounds like it could, uh, does it? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. So <clears throat> Swan Song, um, there's a poem by Orlando Gibbons. The Silver Swan is the name of the piece that he wrote. But it talks about how a, a swan sings only right before she dies and leaning her, her breast against the reedy shore Thus sang her first and last and sang no more. That's the how it ends. How, the, not the book, the poem. And um, this is about a young woman who rises to fame in early Nazi Germany, only to find out that she is one quarter Jewish, a Michelin of the second degree. So she truly had no knowledge. As it turns out, she is the doppelganger. She is the twin of Adolf Hitler's niece, Geli Raubel, who, with whom he had an affair in real life for several years. That's gross. Geli, oh, it's so gross, Frank. Um, Geli, along with seven other women, committed suicide after having relationships with Hitler. In addition to... so, and, and It was a bit of a bad date, it sounds like. Oh, <laughs> that's exactly right. Let's just say he had some issues. So... Hitler loved opera in real life, and he loved Gelly, who passed away, and he never got over her death. He really didn't. It was, according to um, Robert Payne, who wrote The Life and Death of Adolf Hitler, it was the turning point in his life. He had some stuff that happened before then, but Gelly's death was the turning point for him in, ter in terms of unleashing his, his link to any type of morality along the way. Although one could argue in the foreword of my book, you see that even as a teenager, late teen, early 20, his link to morality was tenuous at best. Anywho, so he adores opera, and he thinks Ursula's beautiful, and she looks exactly like Gelly, almost her twin. So Adolf sees her as his second chance, his chance at redemption to get over Gelly's death. Turns out that Ursula falls in love with Adolf's real-life nephew, William Patrick Hitler, who was born and raised in England and who did indeed come over to Germany, first in 1929 and then again in 1933. And so I have woven in, it's truly historical fiction. When I wrote it, I thought it was like 30% fact and 70% fiction until I started listing my pages and pages of resources. And I realized 
how factual it was. So I, I say based on historic people and places, the events that happen in the in the story are real. Many, many of the people are real. Angela, so Hitler can't have her. So she ends up, uh, not Angela, Ursula. He ends up shipping her to Terzin, Terzinstadt concentration camp, which was a true concentration. Well, it was a ghetto camp for artists, people who fought in the First World War, who honorably Jews, and a lot of Czech and Polish um, artists ended up in Terezin. So Ursula is shipped there. And Ursula ends up being a voice instructor for the children who are performing uh, a children's opera called Brundabar. There's actually very little opera in the book. It is simply the method by which Hitler finds and falls in love with Ursula or lust with Ursula and also provides hope and beauty in an otherwise dank, awful place. And then Willie launches a campaign that ends up bringing him to the United States, which again, he did in real life. He ended up, um, he wrote an article for Look Magazine uh, called Why I Hate My Uncle, and William Randolph Hearst brought him to the United States for a speaking tour. So that's what I do in the book to get him to the United States. And he ends up going with the Red Cross to visit Terezin, and they come face to face, Ursula, Hitler, and Willie. And that's towards the end. So I've woven in my passion and interest for World War II and my passion and interest in opera to create this historical fiction called Swan Song. So thrillers featuring a blind man who actually who's injured and becomes blind. So it's even more of a transition. Yes. A, a healthcare professional who encounters some spiritual events in the midst of crisis, both professional and personal, and an opera singer who dates Hitler's nephew. <laughs> so like, there's not a theme here that I can find. <laughs> well, there is actually, yes. So um, change and choice. Each of the characters goes through a tremendous, often incredibly painful transformation. And throughout the transformation, each character is presented with multiple choices, all of which seem unpalatable, but must be made. So transformation and choice are the two themes that I had discovered as I was writing. Well, the blind thrillers are available. Uh, Devil's Grace is available. When will Swan Song be out? October 5th, 2021 through Woodhall Press. So yes. we're getting a pretty good lead time on that. Uh, I'm sure yes. it'll, it'll be available for pre-order soon. Uh, I believe it's available now on Amazon for pre-order. And um, you also, ElizabethSplainAuthor.com is my website if people want to learn more about me and the books. We have an eclectic group of books here, but they all involve yes. change and choice. The author is Elizabeth Splain. And uh, Beth, I want to say thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was super fun. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks, there you go. Uh, Elizabeth Splain and her eclectic catalog of crime fiction. On our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Craig Faustus Buck, uh, who I had a great interview with, a very interesting guy with a lot of history in uh, the entertainment industry uh, as a writer. The only thing I forgot to ask him was uh, about his middle name, which is really cool, but I bet there's a story there. Uh, so I'll have to catch up with him uh, at a later date and uh, find out where that came from. Uh, that's about the only thing I didn't think to ask him about, as uh, he has written for television uh, and is currently writing short stories and novels in the crime fiction arena. 
That's next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Craig Faustus Buck. Zafiro update for you. Uh, hey, it has finally arrived. Yesterday, the Eviction of Hope was released. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, that is a, an anthology uh, edited by Colin Conway. Uh, and there are some great authors uh, who have been included in this, uh, and I've mentioned them in the past, but, uh, uh, you know, people uh, like uh, Jim Latwell, Carmen uh, Jaramillo, uh, Joe Clifford, and Tom Pitts uh, teamed up on a story. Uh, Dana King is in there. I mean, I could go on and on and on there. Hector Acosta, I mean, it's just uh, Holly West. There's just a great cast of characters and i was very fortunate to be included my story is called the rumor in 411 and uh, that came out on may 18th the eviction of hope i hope you check it out pun intended uh also <laughs> uh, also available is uh my newest novel which is one i wrote with lawrence kelter called no dibs on murder uh it's a uh, crime fiction and dark comedy at the same time highbrow and lowbrow humor in which uh, four college friends each have a major grudge against Tanner Fritz and uh, decide to kill him. And the story follows those uh, attempts. Of course, you can find out more about all of this at my website at frankzafiro.com. I want to say thanks to Elizabeth for coming on the show, uh, to Down Out Books for sponsoring the show, and as always to you, the listener. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, please like, subscribe, share, tell people about it, uh, all that cool stuff that helps out the, the, the podcast. And we will be back next week with Craig Faustus Buck. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.